Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Let's Read the Bible. I'm Evan. And I'm Aaron. And this is a podcast where we read through the Bible together every year and talk about what we learned along the way. If you'd like to follow along, you can download the YouVersion Bible app and look up the Grove Church in Marysville, Washington, and you can find our plan there. We also have the plan available on our website, grove.church. And if you're jumping in, this is the last day we're going to be in double... Di- oh, I guess not the last day. The first day of next week will be double... Yeah. Di- but we're on... Sorry. You're right. You're right. That was such a good little setting. Like, oh, swung I too know. soon. Swung too soon. All right, Today's opening deal. day when we're recording. Oh, yeah. So a little baseball reference there for you. If you're not a... You're a major Mariner fan. Yeah. If you're not a baseball fan, then you know, there's still room for your salvation. <laughs> there's still room for your sanctification to grow. Listen, I, I just recently started enjoying baseball for probably for the first real time in my life the last year. So... Um, if, if you don't like baseball, there's grace. Yeah. Mariners 2023 World Series champs. You heard it here. You heard it here first, folks. I don't uh, know if it was first, but maybe they, maybe our listeners did hear, for, hear, hear it first. Uh, but we are on day 92. 92. So I guess next week we'll be on day 99. And then yep. we'll be, this is our last week not having any day in the triple digits, though. I guess oh, that's, that's the way we'll that's say true. it. That's true. Yeah, we'll say that. Uh, and uh, as usual, we like to take time to answer questions that you may have. And they don't always necessarily have to be directly related to what we're reading or what we're talking about week in and week out. Uh, and, and so we just want to, we like to take time to answer questions that you may have about almost any topic. So would love for you to send those in. There's three ways you could do that. One is an email. This is like, I think this is like the new snail mail way. The old school, like send a letter is like sending an email, uh, but you can email us. The email address is info at grove.church. Uh, make sure to put in the subject line a podcast question. Uh, or if you're on social media, you can follow us on Facebook. Like Evan already mentioned, we are the Grove Church in Washington. Uh, or you can also follow us on Instagram. Our Instagram handle is the Grove CH. Uh, and you can direct message us both on both of those platforms. We get the questions there as well. And we do enjoy it. So uh, today's kind of not a, it's not a something based upon what we're reading, but it is a contextual question today that we're going to take time oh, to yeah, answer. Fun. So it'll be a fun one. I'm going to defer to Evan a lot on that one because he is smarter than me. So that's just how it works. We will get to that question question at the end, but I, I will be, I will preface it then as well, but I am in no way an expert <clears throat> on what that listener is asking, <laughs> uh, but I'll do, I'll do my best, but let's talk about Judges. Yeah, which we're wrapping up this book. Among the more depressing books of the Bible. Um, depressing is the wrong way to phrase it, I guess, but no, it's it just is. like, come on guys, like, you know, just do, just do the right thing, Israel. And then when you get to the end, we'll talk about the oh, ending dude, the portion end. of Judges is uh, just like... Total transparency. I forgot that that was literally the end of the book. Oh, yeah. And so I finished reading it during the reading plan and I flipped the page. I was like, oh, that's right. It's over. <laughs> it's just... It is <laughs> right. right. You want to talk about like, the most depressing line, probably in all of scripture, almost all of scripture. I mean, we'll get anyways, to that. We'll get to that craziness. here in a second anyways, as well. Yes. All right. So we're picking up where we left off from last week though. So we're in the story of Gideon. Uh, he has assembled his army of 32,000 men to drive out the Midianites. However, Yahweh is rightfully, and I say this uh, emphatically, he is rightfully a little worried about the people not giving him credit for the victory. Um, if you'll remember back, this is kind of, you know, I feel like last year, the big epiphany I had was that in uh, Kings and Chronicles, the whole thing is set up with the statement of, we want a king, we want to be like the other nations mm-hmm. and Samuel. And that kind of, all of a sudden you realize when you look at the whole books through that through that lens, it all falls into place. Yep. Um, so much of God's deal with Israel is coming out of the miracle of the Red Sea, the, one of the greatest miracles recorded ever in scripture where Yahweh frees his people from the greatest power in the world at that time. And what do they do like a month later? They're like, oh yeah, this cow, that's the one that got us out of there. And so you see that all throughout the Old Testament, God is very much concerned with who is getting the credit for well, what Well, I don't even did. know if he's concerned or worried. He knows what's going to happen. Yeah. Right? That's, that's and I'm not talking about his omniscience where he knows everything. I'm talking about 
the fact that he is fully aware of the depravity and the fallenness of humanity, that he knows if this army at this size goes and fights, they're going to walk away with their own ego saying, look what we did. Mm-hmm. And and so it's, it's I, I would, and I don't know, this is probably splitting hairs and I'm not trying to do that, but like I, I rarely ascribe to God the characteristics of worry or concern. He is fully aware of what's going to happen because he knows our hearts. Jeremiah, right. who above all else knows the heart. It's the most deceitful. God alone. Uh, but it is. He yeah, full on knows what's going to happen, which is why he's responding to Gideon the way he is, which right. is why he's restricting, um, I guess not restricting, but removing uh, warriors from him. That's right. Yeah. Worried is the wrong word to use. You're correct in that because God God knows. Yeah. <laughs> he's, aware, he's aware of what's going to happen there. Uh, so first God tells Gideon to send home anyone who is afraid to fight. So just, hey, you know, <laughs> if you're not if you're not totally bought in and wanting to do this, Go home, no hard feelings. And I feel like it's funny because like that, that scene is in like every war movie and every, like, you know, they just draw a line and then everyone steps across the line. He's like, all right, we're together. And no one ever falls behind. Yeah. And this one. I imagine like 10,000 like, that's me. I need to go home. Uh, like, it's like, yeah. I, that's brave just to even acknowledge that they're free. Like he loses <laughs> like two thirds of his yep. army this way. It's uh-huh. just like, oh, well, we can just leave. Sweet. Okay. Well, see you. See you, Gideon. Have fun. Uh, so he Ho- hope you come back alive. Yep. He takes the army down. Well, that takes the army down to 10,000 men. So he loses 22,000 from that. So crazy. Um, after this, God institutes a water test. So the a litmus test. If yeah. You will. So he goes to, <laughs> uh, he tells Gideon, bring the, bring the army to a brook and just tell them to take a drink and watch how they drink and separate them into two camps. So one camp is for the people who just kind of fully get down on all fours and just bury their it face up. in the water. Yep, exactly. And then the other camp is for people who sit down, uh, they take their hand and they keep their other hand on their sword. They're looking around and then they're sipping the water, right? Um, I told Aaron this last week, but I found out that uh, one of my cats would be in Gideon's <laughs> army because like... I, we were at home and Ashley was like, hey, have you ever watched this cat drink water? And I'm like, here's the deal, listeners. I don't really care about the cats. So I'm like, no, I don't ever like, I don't Sorry, just- Sorry, Ashley. I don't just sit and watch them drink oh, wait, she water. doesn't listen to us anyways, right? That's true. Um, <laughs> so, uh, but one of our cats is like straight up, you know, like sticks his face in the water. That's the way you do it. The other cat is much smaller and is kind of bullied by the bigger cat because our other cat's kind of a jerk. And so what she does is she always keeps her head up and she sticks, she sticks her paw in the water and laps up the water. Like she brings up her paw to her mouth and drinks it. So if she was in this, she would, I don't know, maybe if Gideon wanted cats in his army, he would have picked that cat. So there you go. Uh, but after... This water test, there are only 300 men left. And that is the army that Gideon is going to go to war with the Midianites. Uh, and God is rightfully like, yeah, because no one is going to look at this look at this, and think to themselves, wow, the Israelites are mighty warriors. They're going to realize this must have been a miracle. Uh, so after receiving some reassurance from Yahweh, Gideon takes his 300 men, he divides them into three companies, and he instructs them He instructs them to follow his lead by blowing their trumpets and shouting for Yahweh and for Gideon. So that's their battle cry. Um, I, this is, Speaking of things, a couple of things jumped out at me this week that, you know, because listeners, here's the thing, and we've talked about this a little bit before. Me and Aaron have read through the Bible a lot, like in our lives. That's kind of, that's the nature of our job, but also what we should do as Christians yeah. is read through scripture. Um but every year, what we love about continuing to do this podcast is new things pop out and new things are kind of like, oh, I never thought about this before. Um, for me, the battle cry of for Yahweh and for Gideon, which is what Gideon commands the people to yell, I wonder if that's a possible hint of what's coming. Because again, there is is it a hint of pride that the battle cry is not for Yahweh or even for Yahweh and for Israel, but hmm. specifically instructed to shout for Yahweh and, Gideon. and for Gideon? Um 
And and because I, I I had to reread it just to make sure it, that's not the battle cry that the troops are just going for. Like yeah. that is what Gideon tells them. So it's kind of, and like I said, well, I mean, it's not a spoiler because we're going to talk about it in like yeah. two minutes. But uh, Gideon, you know, he doesn't go. He's not a perfect man, and mm-hmm. so I wonder if this what? is kind what? of a hint of of what's about to go down. Um, but the so when this happens, the Midianites fall into a divine confusion. They're killing each other, and then they are completely routed. Um, after this, Ephraim is super peeved that (laughs) (laughs) it's so yeah Ephraim comes out and they're like hey what the heck man like we we wanted to fight and apparently something happened where they got called later than they were supposed to and Ephraim the tribe of Ephraim is just like dude come on we wanted to fight what is going on right here and so Gideon you know he's kind of a sweet talker though and he tells them like hey hey guys even like to to bring it into modern parlance, he talks about the uh, the threshing floor and the chaff and all this different stuff. But basically, hey, like the leftovers from Ephraim, those are way better than even like the choice meals of every other tribe because you guys are so strong and you're great warriors. Like it's fine. And they're like, oh, shucks, Gideon's oh. And it says, I've got the way the Bible says it, but it's like their their anger leaves immediately, and they're just like, oh, oh, you, thanks, Gideon, stop it. So that happens. Uh, and so after this, Gideon continues to pursue the Midianites, and he goes to two separate cities of Israel, um, and both of them refuse to help. So he's like, hey, we're pursuing the Midianites. Uh, we we need some supplies, and they're both like, I mean. You seem fine to me, bud. Why don't you just keep going along? And like, you know, and in fairness to Gideon, like, what the heck, man? Like, he just drove out your oppressors and you're not going to give him some food, but whatever. And so uh, he promises to uh, the first city, I should have written down the names of the cities, but for the first city, he promises that he's going to whip the elders. And the second city, he <laughs> promises he's going to tear down this high tower. Um, so Gideon goes and he route, he finishes off the Midianites and he comes back and he does exactly what he said. He goes to the first city and he grabs bramble bushes and he whips all of the elders. And he goes to the second city, he tears down the tower and kills all of the male inhabitants. So, uh, and the ESV study Bible points out very astutely, um, you'll notice the one thing missing from this chapter is there's no mention of the presence of the Lord being with Gideon, which is in the previous chapter when he's fighting Midianites, it's talking about like the spirit of the Lord is mm-hmm. upon uh, this one. Nope. This is, this that's seems, a big deal. Yeah. This seems to be just Gideon's, Gideon's thing that he's doing there. Uh, after this, we get Gideon's biggest failure. So this is in Judges chapter eight, verses twenty-two through twenty-eight. My uh, my the CSB calls it G- Gideon's legacy, by the way, which is ironically Ooh. true. <laughs> so. I, I like that. Um, so starting in verse twenty-two, it says, "The men of Israel said to Gideon, Rule over us, and your son and your grandson also, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian.'" And Gideon said to them, "I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you. The Lord." will rule over you. Well, which good is, job, Gideon. So let's pause, job. let's pause right there. Great. Yeah. That's, that's a golf a, clap. Exactly. Like, good job, Gideon. That's the way to do it. Um, I feel like by what comes next, he's either clearly lying <laughs> or he's just like, he doesn't get like what he's saying here because like, hey, why don't you be our king? He's like, whoa, 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 guys, there is no king in Israel. I'm not ruling over you. Yahweh is our king and he rules over you. But, and then in verse 24, and Gideon said to them, let me make a request of you. Every one of you give me the earrings from his spoil, for they had golden earrings because because they were Ishmaelites. And they answered, we will willingly give them. And they spread a cloak and every man threw threw in it the earrings of his spoil. And the weight of the golden earrings that he requested was 1,700 shekels of gold, besides the crescent ornaments and the pennants and the purple garments worn by the king of Midian, and besides the collars that were around the necks of the camels. And Gideon made an ephod of it and put it in his city in Orphra. Great job, oh idiot. Just kidding. And all of Israel whored after it there. I love the way that 
parts of the Old Testament when they describe idolatry, that is the word that they use because I think it's a very apt word. It's it's absolutely uh, it's great. Uh, but all of Israel whored after it there, and they became and it became a snare to Gideon and to his family. Huh, I wonder why that would become a snare. Oh man! So Midian was subdued before the people of Israel, and they raised their heads no more, for the land had rest for forty years in the days of Gideon. So yeah, he's like, guys, guys, I'm not your king. Um, but why don't you all give me some tribute? You yeah, know, pay me tribute. But I'm not a king. Hey, yeah. well, I'm, I'm not, not your leader. I'm not ruling over you. Far be it for me to be a king. But uh, why don't you bring? Why don't you bring me some of the spoils of war? <laughs> so that happens, um, and then we see what happens next. Is he? He essentially kind of. He subverts the priesthood. He subverts the role of the Levites, which mm-hmm. we see as a temptation for powerful men in Israel. Um, I think of Uzziah, which we'll get to. I, I should I don't know when we're going to get to it because the chronological plan kind of is like just jumbling it all up. So Uzziah will probably be pretty far away from now, but um, it's coming though. Yeah, yeah. At some point this year, we will talk about King Uzziah, or I forgot probably December. Is it Azariah no, is that his other name? He has two. Anyway, um, but you, you might remember from last season, listeners, that Uzziah is a good king, uh, but he ends very poorly and he tries to usurp the role of the priest. We won't spoil everything. We'll wait till we get there. Um, and we see Gideon is kind of a precursor to this where he gets a little, he gets a little too big for his britches as mm-hmm. my grandpa or grandma would say. And he just makes himself the ephod. So not, not great. Yeah. It's interesting how quick you see him turn. And, and it's interesting because I think it's part of the human uh, tendency. So I, it, I, I don't know if I ever thought about this until we were just now talking about it, but the idea, like, he understands the right response. I'm not going to rule over you. My son is not going to rule over you, but the Lord will do it. And, but then how quickly in that moment of humility, arrogance or pride creeps in. And so I, do I do I think Gideon had the intention to do that and be kind of deceitful and lie about it? I don't think so. Um, but it is interesting how quick it, it turned around. Hey, I'm, I'm going to, the Lord will do it, but. By the way, and then he became, then he had a snare. So it, it, it's funny because it's not even like he's not even uh, ruling over the people, but he took tribute and he created his own little his own little stumbling block in, in idolatry, which it, is interesting. It kind of reminds me of Balaam from a few weeks ago, yeah. where he knows the right answers and he knows like, no, like I'm not going to curse this yeah. people because Yahweh is not going to give me permission to do that. And what, what does he go? With? But listen, I want money, so here's how you can. Yep. This is how you can overcome them. Like, have your women go out and seduce the men. Like. Yeah, there's deceitfulness in there. So, Aaron, remember a couple of minutes ago when the people a of Israel ago. <laughs> remember back try to remember back to a little bit ago when the people of Israel offered Gideon and said, "Hey, why don't you become king and rule over all of us?" And Gideon's like, "No, no, we shouldn't do that." No, nope, not you know even who, my son. You know who thought that was a good idea? His son, Abimelech. So Gideon dies, uh, and after this, we're going to chapter nine is concerned with big, Gideon's biggest Gideon's biggest disappointment which is his son Abimelech. We don't actually know if he was disappointed in Abimelech because he's dead after this, but I think that's just the, I think that's an apt way to describe, like if your son is Abimelech, you're kind of bummed about that. That's so, a, to take it modern day ways, he's looking up from, abo- from above disappointed. Yeah, like, oh my <laughs> gosh. Um, so Abimelech is one of 70 sons of Gideon, or I guess it's either 71 or 72. I'd have to do the math on it. There's a lot of sons, yes. right? So Gideon uh, clearly, you know, he enjoys... The wives and concubines, I guess, is, is well, the and that's way, the other thing too. Is like there. Abimelech is not even a son of his wife; it's of a concubine, right? Well, because I think as a kid, and I get it, because like you're not going to bring up concubines in Sunday school, like that's not appropriate to bring <laughs> up for like third grade. What's a concubine? But yeah, but as a kid, it's always like, how are these people? How are they having so many kids? That seems insane to me. How and then can like one, one mom, one mom. How can one mom have seventy? Yeah, exactly. And now, as a as a adult, you realize, oh, because they have like a bajillion wives. Yep. That's what's happening slash concubines. But anyway, sorry, that's that's a whole. Uh, to be clear, I'd never. 
asked that or thought that question in my head when we were when I was a kid. Really? That didn't like, oh, that always bothered me nope. as a kid. Um, so anyways. It Abim- would. I believe that. It would. <laughs> so Abimelech is this, yeah, he's the son of Gideon and one of, and a concubine. Uh, he goes to Shechem, which you might remember is the, uh, it got, it got famous first because that's where Levi and Simeon uh, did their violent deeds. <laughs> uh, and then it became famous later because that's where the covenant renewal mm-hmm. happened twice with Joshua. And it's going to be famous again. Some other stuff's going to happen. So Get ready. Uh, Abimelech and the Shechemites create a, uh, a conspiracy, I guess you'll say. And so Abimelech goes and he kills all the other sons of Gideon, except for one. One escapes. Yeah. He convinced him to... Wasn't, didn't he convince him first to let him be the ruler? I thought it was like they came to like a party or something, but I, should have, I didn't write by that part down because I'm being a dum-dum. Oh, you're being a dum-dum. It's hard to be... I, I mean, yeah, there's just so much that we read and want to highlight. So anyways, all I have to say... Abimelech becomes king anyways. Tre- treachery. He kills all of the he kills all of the sons of Gideon except for one, uh, and he becomes kind of king over Israel. You know, proto king. Uh, we don't know. I, I, it it seems doubtful that he's ruling over all of the tribes of Israel, but he's ruling over a significant portion at least, and he does so for three years. Um, but you know, eventually the Shechemites and Abimelech betray each other. Um, I like the note in the ESV Study Bible where it says they deserve each other because it's very true. Um, <laughs> And then while Abimelech is sieging Shechem and he's trying to take out the tall tower, there's a woman who takes a rock and a a, a hefty rock. It's enough to where when she throws it down and it hits Abimelech, it crushes his skull and he realizes that he's about to die. And so he turns to his servant and he's like, dude, stab me. So people don't say it like I got killed by a woman. And so his servant's like, oh yeah, checks out. And so his servant stabs him and that's how Abimelech dies. So a violent end for- uh, A violent start. Yeah, an exceptionally violent man. Uh, in chapter 10, we get we start with two footnote judges. Um, and this doesn't mean they're not important. It just means that they don't get mentioned very much. So it's kind of like Othniel in the very beginning where it's just like, yeah, Othniel did this thing. And Shamgar. Yeah, Shamgar is the other one. Shamgar gets like a sentence. That's yep. insane. Uh, so we hear about Tola and Jair. Uh, I think, and I put this in uh, the notes, but I think the fact that there's not much noticeable about their judgeships is probably a good thing. Or yeah. notable, especially coming after what they just what we just read through. Yeah, exactly. Like usually, <laughs> it's kind of like I I think um, I'm I'm a U.S. history nerd, so I think sometimes we there's presidents who are really good presidents who we don't talk about being good presidents because nothing happens. So like Calvin Coolidge, like that was awesome. James Monroe, really good. And basically, their deal was like, hey, things are good. Uh, we're just going to keep them. We're going to keep them good. And that's kind of what it seems like Tola and JR do. They, they lead the people of Israel in the right way, and they don't have the incredible falls of, of the more famous judges. So there you go. Uh, after these good times, Israel pulls their classic move and they start worshiping other gods. Um, at this, Yahweh gives them over to the Philistines on the west of the Jordan and to the Ammonites on the east. So remember, if remember back to Numbers, um, the people of Israel are fighting the Ammonites on the east side of it, and then some of the land is taken, and that's where the the land of is it, it's east. East Manasseh, I believe, is the land that is taken from the Ammonites after they go to war. But don't don't quote me on that, listeners. Um, so the people cry out to deliver for deliverance, and God answers like this. So this is in Judges chapter ten, and God says, "Yet you have forsaken me and served other gods. Therefore, I will save you no more. Go and cry out to the gods whom you have chosen, and let them save you in the time of your distress." Pause. I love that line. I think <laughs> I, I I just love. Um, because it, it's so right, it's it's so uh, righteous, I guess, of God uh, to say this. Because yeah, if you're go- if you're going to worship other gods and make all these claims about how they're like your protectors, then let them protect you. Like, why are you only coming to me when you're in dire straits? Um, and the people of Israel said to the Lord. 
We have sinned, do to us whatever seems good to you, only please deliver us this day. So they put away foreign gods from among them and served the Lord, and he became impatient over the misery of Israel. And so even when God is super mad, like he clearly is right there, the people put away the foreign gods, they worship Yahweh mm-hmm. alone, and, and and God's heart, Yahweh's heart is is turned towards them. Uh, for a moment. For a moment. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, it's... It takes a really long time before they run out of second chances. Absolutely. <laughs> and we'll get to that Which eventually. Which is so good for, yeah. for us today, but... Well, yeah, we'll get to that eventually, listeners, but it's... Uh, e- eventually, there will come a point where the people of Israel are like, hey, what if we what if we repented? And God's like, no, like, <laughs> we're done. We're done here. <laughs> oh. um, so the elders of Gilead, which is in the eastern... It's east of the Jordan River in Gad. So if kind of mental map, if Reuben is the southernmost eastern tribe, Gad is in the middle and East Manasseh is on top. So it's in the middle of the east there. Um, the elders of Gilead go to a mighty warrior named Jephthah or Jephthah. And I'm going to say Jephthah just because that's how I grew up. And that's, that's yeah, I think that sounds cooler. Uh, so they go to him for help. Years before, Jephthah is driven out of Gilead because he is his father's illegitimate son with a prostitute. So his wife drives and the people of Gilead basically drive him away. Um, he becomes becomes kind of like a, um, this is romanticizing it a little bit, but kind of like a Robin Hood figure almost. Not that he's stealing from the rich and giving the poor, but he's like living as an outlaw mm. warrior is essentially yeah, his like thing. Yeah, like a marauder. And it talks about how worthless men joined him. So, uh, you know. That's he, never a good thing. Never, not a good thing, but it does mean that he knows how, he knows how to fight because yep. he's surviving out there in the wilderness. Uh, when he is asked for help, he responds this way. But Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, did you not hate me and drive me out of my father's house? Why have you come to me now when you are in distress? And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, that that is why we have turned to you now, that you may go with us and fight against the Ammonites and be our head over the inhabitants of Gilead. Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, if you bring me home to fight against the Ammonites and the Lord gives them over to me, I will be your head. And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, the Lord be witness between us if we do not do as you say. So Jephthah went with the elders of uh, went with the elders of Gilead, and the people made him the head leader over them. And Jephthah spoke all these words before the Lord at Mizpah. So speaking of things that kind of stood out to me, I, I know I never noticed that the response of Jephthah and the response of of Yahweh are somewhat similar. And mm-hmm. so obviously it's not word for word or anything. Um, but remember when the people cry out to to Yahweh for deliverance, he's like, I mean you. Essentially, like um, this is this is kind of paraphrasing a little bit, but you drove me out. Like you you are worshiping other gods. You're not worshiping me anymore. Why should I come help you? And when they go to Jephthah, Jephthah's answer is literally, "You drove me out. Like why are you, why are you coming to me for help now?" And the implied um, the the implied answer there is, "Why don't you just save yourselves? Like yeah. if you if you don't want me, then why don't you just look to the people in Gilead to do the work for you?" And they say that well, they can't. Um, so it is kind of interesting there that both. The judge of Israel at this time and, and God Himself have similar attitudes towards the Israelites. Um, so at the end of chapter eleven, we get the scene that this is what Jephthah is most famous for. So he, and it's also his most tragic point. Um, he makes a vow to Yahweh that he will sacrifice whatever runs out of his house uh, first if he's given victory. So the idea is that it, when he um, is victorious over the Ammonites. And and we kind of talk, I can't remember why we talked about this. We talked about this a few weeks ago, where animals would stay inside of the house in that culture, and so it was very common that like an animal is it's clearly what Jephthah is expecting here that an animal is going to run out of his house, um, and he will sacrifice that. Did we actually talk about that? Or maybe we I know you and I talked about it offline. Oh, maybe that's uh, what it was. Maybe yeah. We didn't talk so about the context here, just so that way, because I care about you being a part of our conversation too, listeners. Because um, I'm reading a book about Jesus through the Middle Eastern eyes, which talks about the birth of Christ and the arrival. So when we get to Matthew, we get to the the gospels 
I'll share some more dialogue here, but but culturally here, and here's the thing, I'm glad you we're talking about this because this is the one moment where I actually don't like the translation of the CSB. Ooh. Um, because the CSB translated as whatever person uh, comes out of my door, I will sacrifice them to you. Every, uh, maybe not, every other translation I looked at, Amplified, Message, ESV, NLT, I think even the NIV, they all say whatever comes out of my, what comes out of my door. So culturally there was the way that their houses were built, it's like one big rectangle, but it has like a lower area where animals were brought in overnight. Typically this was customary in ancient times and Middle Eastern culture uh, was they'd bring in the animals overnight because it helped keep the house warm because of body heat, but it would also keep them safe from being stolen or taken or whatever. So they'd shut a door and the animals would be in. And so the, the access to the and from the house was this door. So it was very customary in the morning to open up the door and let the animals go out to pasture or to graze or to go to the bathroom or whatever that looks like. They would go, they would be allowed out. So when Jephthah makes his vow, there's there's potential he didn't have in mind that it would be a family member or a person coming out that door, but that rather it would be an animal that he would sacrifice. And so the so there is some of that in, indication there. Um, I, and this is where I, I wrestle with this translation of the CSBs because it almost felt like because they knew the end of the story that they ascribed a person to Jephthah's vow when it when I think the better translation is whatever. But that's that's my little side note there. But that's kind of the context what's happening when Jephthah's making this vow. Whatever comes out of my door in the morning first, I'll sacrifice. Mm-hmm. And so when he returns home, his daughter is the first person to run out of the house. To come out and celebrate his victory. Like yep. it was a celebratory thing. Um, her daughter, his daughter was good, glad to see him. You were victorious. And yep. And so Jephthah tells her about his vow um, and she goes and for a month and she kind of just mourns what's yeah. about to happen. She comes Well, and back. she responds graciously. She's like, yep. well, whatever you've promised, you can't go back on. And so, and this is where it gets. The Bible leaves a little vague, but I think the the uh, the clearest interpretation is that Jephthah actually does straight up kill, through, yeah. yeah, kill his daughter and and sacrifice her. Um, where this can hopefully didn't happen, and I guess maybe maybe it didn't is, and again, it's left a little bit vague because all it says is Jephthah did according to his word. Mm-hmm. Um, Jephthah clearly understands enough about the laws of Israel to realize, like, hey child sacrifice that's kind of like the big no no or one of the one of the big no nos in the law um and so there is some there are some interpretations that say essentially uh he commits his daughter to a life of perpetual virginity hmm. so essentially that his line ends and that is it's sacrificing that part interesting um, but yeah, again, that's kind of yeah, like, I don't know. I don't know if that's hopeful interpretation or if that's what it is. It is kind of interesting because if you read the chapter before, Jephthah is is talking and clearly understands like a lot about the law of Israel. Yeah. He's not he's not just um I, I guess yeah, because he's living as an outlaw, that doesn't mean he knows nothing and doesn't worship Yahweh. He clearly does. Yeah. And so I I yeah. And I, this is one I of hope those, he doesn't. <laughs> well, and this is one of those moments where in the Bible it it details what happened and occurred, but it doesn't condone it. And I think this is part of the, like for me, part of the v- validation of the uh, the truth of scripture is the fact that it doesn't hide the bad things. It's this is this is a detailed as, as it's as detailed the history as we can get in some regards, but it details the negative things, the bad things. But it doesn't say, hey, this is okay, you should do it. Um, it even details right. the things that you shouldn't do, but this is what happened, and so um, and it, it only adds to the the sorrowness that uh, sorrowness. It only adds to the grief that I think we should all feel as we read the book of Judges. Like this is a depressing book, um, but that it, it doesn't mean that hey, this is condoned and you should do it. It's it's well, just detailing what actually happened. And Judges is a little bit interesting because there are points where. <clears throat> 
I think more, I say this without having actually done the research, but it feels like more than any other Old Testament book, they present things to you without any sort of commentary saying, and the Lord disapproved of yep. this or in this. And we're going to get to a bigger one of that. Yeah. Because for me, yeah, Judges 19 was a big, um, stumbling blocks, the wrong word, but it was something I oh. really, it was something I really wrestled yes. through. Um, because, I still wrestle with it. Yeah. Because it's not, because con- it's not condemned. And essentially, one of the ways it clicked with me finally as I was reading commentary, it's like, no, the whole ending is about how depraved Israel is. So yep. like, yeah, it doesn't have to be outright condemned. Anyone reading it would have realized this is disgusting. And so it's yeah. kind of like, that's kind of the thing there. But We'll get that in a second. Yeah. All right. So after, after Jephthah's sacrifice, uh, he is confronted by a certain tribe that is feeling left <laughs> out of all the fighting. Can you guess who it is? <laughs> it's, uh, it's Ephraim. <laughs> so this is... I don't know why I never picked up on that. Yeah, Even I, as I read it, it's like it didn't click. Yeah, this, <laughs> is the, so this is the first time I realized that too. But yeah, Ephraim, who confronted Gideon about, hey, why are you leaving us out? They, they find Jephthah. And like, hey, bro, why are you leaving us out of all this? <laughs> Apparently Ephraim was just itching for a fight and no one wanted to invite them to the fight. And so, but Jephthah... They were the forgotten tribe. Yeah. Remember? Oh, man. Uh, Jephthah does not have the political acumen of Gideon. And so where Gideon kind of talks him down, Jephthah's just like, fine, you want to fight? Let's fight. And then he just kills a bunch of the Ephraimites. <laughs> so there you go. Uh, I put in the notes, Ephraim gets pwned. I don't know. I was going to say so. that. We got to say that because that's like, that's such an old school gamer word. It's true. I'm just an old school. I'm just an old school guy. Um, so the latter, the, that's the end of Jephthah. Uh, the latter half of chapter 12 gives us three more footnote judges. And so this is Ibzan, Elon, and Abdon. Uh, Ibzan and Abdon are most notable for their utter disdain of any fam- family planning <laughs> methods uh, because they have like 20 and 30 kids respectively. So there you go. Uh, but some more judges who, uh, you know, they did they did good stuff and they didn't apparently do anything bad enough to warrant a really long section. And that's the other thing I'll guess, I've, you know, and I, I always reference Sunday school and I get it. Like you can't bring up some of the stuff that It's happened, so true. But all of the famous judges are it's because they suck. <laughs> like, that's the reason they get like, like Samson, we're about to talk about him. He has a horrible fall. Jephthah has his vow. Gideon has his fall with um, the ephod. And then if you're counting uh, Barak or Barak as the judge and not Deborah, then you're seeing like, yeah, it's about mm-hmm. how it's his failures. What about Ehud? Deborah has to step in. That's true. He's a good one. That's true. Ehud gets the long story. But he was also the very beginning. <laughs> yeah. And let's be honest, it's just a great, well, if speaking of Sunday school, the story about the guy who killed the king who pooped He's his a pants. Very, very fat man. <laughs> it's a great. It's a great story. Uh, all right. So chapter thirteen. Although to be clear, I don't know if they teach that in, in kids' church. I taught so. it. You taught the. Oh, oh yeah, dude. Well, but so but I, was, I don't think that the the curriculum teaches that. Like, hey, he crapped himself. That's true. Uh, I didn't say crapped himself. I you said, s- and you kids, you know what happened after he killed the king? Like, what? I'm like, he pooped his pants. Yeah, that's not in the curriculum. That's an added Evan bonus. That's just that a. Is. That's just but, a. That's a miss. But I also think the other side of it too is is. I mean, go to the kids' church thing for a second. The goal of, of of any kid's environment is to teach them the the power and the sheer amazing amazing reality of who God is and what He does. So, of course, it's not going to talk about the, the character flaws and the issues because as kids, we want I want my children to be enamored with how great and powerful God is and that He uses people that are broken and 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 just stupid, right. um, and that he uses God, people in that way. Um, so of course, in kids, it's not, we're not, so we're not harping on kids ministry where they don't, they don't teach about oh, yeah, what's no. really happening. Cause that's not accurate. It's contextual. It's audience driven, but it is, I, I, as a kid, I never heard my teacher say that this King pooped himself. Just that, saying. And that's a miss by your Sunday school teacher. It, might, it might be, but it was also a different era back then. I'm, I'm 10 years older than you. So. That's true. A little bit more, pro- a little bit more proper that was Aaron's that's generation. True. Anyways, we, yeah, we cared more about propriety. I wore suits to church. Boom. All right. So in chapter 13, we are introduced to the final judge of the book and certainly the 
most famous. Yeah. So this is Samson. Uh, he, a man named Manoah of Dan, of the tribe of Dan, uh, and his wife were unable to have children. This is a very common theme all yes. throughout. I was about to say the Old Testament, but the New Testament too. because Yeah, what, you see it all over the yeah, place. Yeah, John the Baptist happens there as well, or in that way as well. Uh, so a strange man appears to her appears to Manoah's wife, who we don't get her name, so I just I have to call her Manoah's wife, unfortunately. Uh, the woman. Yeah, the woman. Uh, but he, appear, he appears to her and tells her that she's going to have a son and that he must be a Nazarite. Um, so really quick aside, because you may not remember this, in Numbers, we talked about there's a special vow made mm-hmm. if people wanted to set themselves specially apart for service to Yahweh. It's called the Nazarite vow. Um, there's a bunch of extra dietary restrictions. The famous one, and it's most famous because of the story of Samson, is that they can't ever trim their hair. Um, and so you yeah. just, you, no razor can touch their head. And so Samson is- They're not uh, supposed to drink from the vine. They're not supposed to touch anything dead. Yeah. Like they're supposed to, like it's it's a, it's a, li- it's like a holy set apart kind of lifestyle is what it yep. is. And famous Nazarites include, Samson is the most, he's not the most famous character who is a Nazarite, but he's most famous for being a Nazarite. But mm-hmm. there's also Samuel and John the Baptist. Yep. So there you go. Uh, and so Manoah prays, because remember this, the, the uh, I won't spoil it, the stranger, this strange man appeared only to Manoah's wife. Uh, and so Manoah prays and he asked to meet with this uh, man of God himself. So he's assuming this is a prophet of some sort. Uh, and so the man appears once again to a Manoah's wife and she runs to grab Manoah. Uh, and he says the same thing and they fully believe they're fully bought in. He's like, Hey, so when this happens, like there's not even questioning it. So they offer sacrifice of Thanksgiving and then the man disappears into the fire and smoke. So basically it says, as the fire goes up Assumes towards heaven, sacrifice. Yep. he just goes into it as well. And then they realize, like, oh my fire, gosh. it's an angel of the Lord. And so there you go. And then it's, yeah, there you go. <laughs> Good times. All right. So Samson is born and we fast forward a few years. Uh, and listeners, let me tell you, this guy, he's a, he's a real piece of work. <laughs> oh, so true. so uh, first, he wants to marry a Philistine woman, which is, you know, a little bit against the law. And, and against when, the Nazarite vow. Oh, that's true too. Uh, and after this whole misstep, so here's the deal. He's like, no, I want to marry her. And the parents are like, dude, why? Like, this is a really bad decision. Like, no, no, I want to someone from it. your own tribe and people? And there is a little bit of, of a side where it's like the parents didn't realize that God was going to, he he was going to use this. Yeah. And so God is, uh, if ever there was a case of God using an imperfect person to accomplish his will, Samson is high up there on that list of people that are that way. Uh, so he goes, he has this whole wedding feast. Uh, there's a whole mishap with a riddle. You know, he, Samson tells a riddle, one thing leads to another, dozens of Philistines are murdered. You know, don't you love stories like that? Where <laughs> one thing leads to another. Um, but yeah, and so Samson is, I don't know, he, he's just kind of a hothead. And so he tells a riddle and he's like, hey, if you can't, if you don't solve this by the end of the week, then, uh, you know, you owe me. And if you can't 30 solve it- 30 pieces of clothing. Yeah, I'll, I owe you. And so- There's 30 guys, 30 pieces of clothing. Yep. And so they can't solve it. They go to his wife. She's like, I don't know what to do here. They threaten to kill us. Yeah. They're like, hey, if you don't- Are they us- married at this point? I, it's kind of up for debate. This is the, the celebration, like the wedding feast, right? Their wedding week. That's what right. it was. So it's during this week like uh, to celebrate the the marriage that these two are going to have or they have or whatever. Mm-hmm. So exactly. That's what it is. So I would say, yeah, they're probably married at this point. So yeah, a bunch, bunch of people end up being killed over this. Samson leaves and then the woman's wife gives him gives her over to be married to Samson's best man, basically, in that moment. Samson goes back. The woman's dad. The woman's dad. What I say? The woman's wife. Oh yeah, the woman's dad. Uh, Samson's father-in-law. Like, Wait a minute. So Samson goes back to claim his wife later, and he finds out that his father-in-law already gave her away. So kind of Laban vibes from this guy. Um, <laughs> but also, true. I put that in the notes. But also, I realized like Samson he just left. Like, I don't. I guess I don't blame the yeah. dad for being like, well, 
are you marrying my daughter? Like, no. Okay, I guess you if you want to marry her, cool. Like that's fine. Because he so, went back to his parents, right? Yeah, yeah. He goes back, and so Samson leaves. <laughs> he just comes back. There's like, hey, where's, is, where's my wife? I'm ready to see my wife again. This is not the next morning. This is some time has passed. Well, but I do think even culturally, it's it wasn't. Maybe I'm wrong here. Um, I don't think it was abnormal for a husband and a wife to not see each other for a few days. Because of work, because of different things. Like it, it's not like today, modern times where nine to five, I, I'm home every evening. Um, but there is something culturally about husband's jobs or husband's family or priorities or whatever going to see. Anyways, so it wasn't 100% abnormal for a husband to not be present with his wife for a, a certain amount of time. Uh, but this one, like the way things ended, absolutely left there to be a question. Uh, but at the end of the day, God was using God was going to use this to help bring justice to His people from the Philistines. Yeah, sure. Yeah, I haven't done enough research into like the cultural background of that to to know one way or the other. But uh, anyway, Samson gets back, and his, the father in law is like, "Oh, hey, yeah, no, she's married now. Um, I mean, if you want, you can marry her her sister. I isn't mean, she pretty? Yeah, isn't she like she's good looking? And Samson's like, you know what? I'm going to be cool about this. Um, obviously like I'm I lost, take the high road. Yeah. I lost I'm going to be the better man. I lost my temper a little bit earlier, killed a bunch of people over that riddle. Um, obviously, you know, I'm upset with you, dear father-in-law, but I'm going to be cool about this. I'm going to offer grace. Uh, no, Samson take that. Five. That's an Evan standard version. <laughs> oh man. Uh, Samson takes a bunch of foxes. He ties torches to their tails <laughs> and he just lets them go in, in the and fields. He's like, he's like, you know what? Yeah, I get it. I'm going to burn everyone's farms I'm to the- I'm burning it to the ground. I'm going to burn this mother to the ground. <laughs> so that's what Samson does. Oh. Um, again, he leaves. It's heartbreaking. Oh, Samson. So- uh, and you know, I guess he's doing it to Philistines, so you can't be too mad at the guy. It's uh, fair. Yeah, they deserve it. So after this, um, some people of Judah, the, there's a small army of Judah that goes and like, hey, Samson, the Philistines are like going to kill us all unless we deliver them over to you. And so he's like, okay, that's fair. And so Samson allows himself to be bound and brought to uh, the Philistines. When he gets to them, the spirit of Yahweh empowers him uh, and he busts out of the ropes. He, and this is like the most famous thing that Samson does. Uh, he find, he looks around, he sees the jawbone of a donkey, he grabs it and he kills a thousand men. Just uh, like that. And it's like, and I think sometimes people are like, that seems so unrealistic that he could kill a thousand men. Like, yes, it's a miracle. Like that's the, uh, that's, that's the point. That's the point of all, everything that Samson does. It's not that, um, it's not that he's like a superhero. It's that. He miracles are happening. Like yeah. God is using him to accomplish miracles. When again, remember at the very beginning of Judges, that's the point. God is, I mean, I think I said I want to intro Judges. God's the hero, not the judges. God's the savior, not the judges. Yep. And God is very adamant about making that point. We saw it with Gideon, but we saw it all throughout Judges. And so even in this moment, the point is not that Samson is the hero of the, of the Israelites. It's that God is empowering Samson, who is a drastically imperfect man, to save the Israelites. It's That's, God who's the savior, which is important just to remember that. Like, cause we can ascribe a whole lot of character issues to Samson. We'll be able to ascribe a whole lot of character issues to David later on. But at mm-hmm. the end of the day, like just remember the point of, of judges is not that they would all receive the, the glory and the validation of, of their victories, but it's God. God mm-hmm. is, is, is the one who does it. So I remember listening to a pastor and he was talking about how he thinks, um, cause like one of the failures, not failures, that's the wrong way to put it. He's like, one of the mistakes I think we can make when we portray Samson like media is that he's like super buff and huge. And he's like, I feel like you should just start portraying Samson as like a normal looking guy. And then you kind of get the point. Yeah. Cause when you portray him as like, he's basically the Hulk, you're like, oh yeah, Samson was awesome. But if you just like make how great he is, if you just made him like an average guy and then he did these things, you start to realize, oh, oh, it's a miracle. Got it. So it's yeah. Captain America before he turned to Captain America. There you go. <laughs> uh, so after 
after this, uh, Samson gets a new honey, and uh, her name is... <laughs> a new honey. Well, we actually, we don't know. So she's just... <laughs> all we know is that she's a prostitute in Gaza. Uh, the men of Gaza hear that he is nearby, and they plan to kill him. And Samson escapes by going to the city gates and literally just lifting <laughs> up the gate on his own and then closing it behind him and... No, he carries the gates off. Is that what it is? Oh, yeah, he right. rips the gates off and carries them home. You're right. That's my bad. So this and this and this is significant because the city gates are like the the primary entrance and exit point of the, of the city, which is also like a, a very stronghold, a very strong. Uh, it's a defense piece. So when him ripping off the gates is literally like now you have no safety as as part of that whole thing. So anyway, so he takes the gates off and he carries them away. You're right. I am so ashamed. this is where you get the picture of Samson's the Hulk, like because <laughs> <laughs> city gates are not light. So he takes them off their hinges and walks away with them, which is. Yeah, so comical. So Samson, he's he's you know he's twice now gotten in really big trouble because he is um, you know sleeping with uh, <laughs> women who are not part of Israel and and who also are not. I guess the first one was his wife, but you know the second you know he's he's getting in trouble for breaking his Nazarite vows here. So obviously Samson learns his lesson, which is start off that way and doesn't do. Remember uh, the riddle. That's true. He, he kills a lion, became defiled, and he goes back and puts his hand in the carcasses where he finds the honey. Oh my! He goodness. breaks the, he breaks the vows left and right. Classic. Not the vow left and right. So all right. Well, after this, Samson ends up with his one true love. That is Delilah. Uh, <laughs> hey there, Delilah. What's oh, it like in man. New York City? So she is a Philistine woman. Uh, <laughs> when the Philistines hear that Samson is in love with her, they offer her a bunch of money to betray him, and she's totally cool with that. Yeah. So obviously, Hook me up. yeah, obviously she's she's a, Samson is a great judge of character. Um, she asks Samson, "Hey, you know." This is my paraphrase here. Hey, Samson, you're really strong. And obviously this is Why? like miracles are happening. She's got to be twirling her hair and her finger a is, bit. Is like there like, a little ditzy. Is there like anything that I could do to make you not strong? And Samson's like, I guess credit to Samson. He's like, well, this that's kind of a weird question to ask. So he lies, right? He's like, well, yeah, if you... Uh, if you bound me with uh, seven bowstrings, I would instantly become like any other man. And so... Uh, Delilah plays this hilarious prank where she binds him with seven <laughs> bowstrings and then she shouts and says, uh, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. And Samson wakes up and he busts out of what the bowstrings and she's like, "You, oh, you lied to me. I got So here's the thing. As a kid, I always understood this as every time this is happening, there's assassins who are who, – and he kills them, right? I don't know if this is how I was told or if this is just how I like interpreted as a kid because I was always like, Samson, like – they're, you're killing assassins every single time. Like clearly, you understand. So this, that's not what's happening. What it seems like is what Delilah is setting this up as. There are assassins in the room when this is going down, but mm. they're they're hidden. What Delilah is setting this up as is she's testing him. So she wants to make sure he's not lying. So she found the bowstrings, she tied him up, and then when she found out that he he was lying, she's really upset. So that's what that's what the lie here is. Um, so she's you know she's really mad, and so Samson busts out. Well, she's and, mad because she didn't get her money. Well, there's that too. That, that's part of it. She's mad because. Oh yeah, I don't think she's actually mad that Samson lied. I think she's mad that. Yeah, she's Samson's, like, you. I, yeah. I have this agreement that you don't know about. You lied to me. I don't get my money. Like, and so because and at the end of it, you'll see that she begs, "Hey, come back one more time." Yep. So, so you know, Samson's like, "Okay, fine, fine, fine. It's new ropes. If you bind me with new ropes, then uh, you know nothing. I, I'll be like any other man." <laughs> and she does that. He busts out, and then he's like, "Okay, if you weave my hair into uh, I forgot what it is, a, but a, a loom is that what it is? is, that what it is? If you weave my hair into a loom with the fabric or whatever. Like yeah. in essence, a loom is what you make like a blanket or something from." Clothing from or whatever. It's this old yeah. contraption. It's also one of the but first. If, if you weave my hair into it is what he's saying. Loom is also one of the first texts that you want to research in Age of Empires as well to beef up your villagers a little bit. Um, and so that is happened. That, you got that from the video you were watching is, the other day? No, that was just from playing Age of Empires. Um, 
So that Age of Empires two, to be clear. Um, so that happens. Samson wakes up. The Philistines are not, you know, they're not, they're no not words. visible. And he's like, come on. And Delilah's like, you lied to me again. And so Samson's finally like, okay, fine. If you, you know, if you shave my head, if a razor touches my head. So he actually tells her the truth. Like after all this is happening. And so finally he wakes up, the Philistines are upon him. And then she realizes like, okay, no, this is the truth. And so the Philistines are actually there and he goes to fight them. And this is one of the more sad scenes in the Bible. He can't overcome Also a very them. sad verse. Yeah. And this is a, uh, yeah, he, the man, the man who with the empowerment of the Lord slaughtered a thousand Philistines cannot take down this small group to escape. Um, the Philistines capture him, they pluck out his eyes, and they parade him around as a trophy. Um, and they claim that Dagon, their god, had delivered Samson into their hands. So ironically, they're committing the same uh, the same sin as Israel at Sinai, right? Because Yahweh is the one who delivers the people out of Egypt, and they claim it's other gods. In the same way, Yahweh is the one who delivers Samson into the hands of the Philistines. Um, obviously, it's Samson's idiocy in breaking the vow, um, but it is God who's choosing not to empower Samson in that moment. Yeah. And so they- Well, and so it's the line I say, one of the saddest part is it's literally like, he did not know that the Spirit of the Lord had left him. Yeah. And, and the crazy thing to me is like, every time I read this story, I can't get past like, are you just so arrogant and caught up in the fact that you are invincible that you're not picking up on the fact that the lie, like, I'm sorry, these were successive moments and maybe not back to back to back, whatever, but like same situation, same scenario, same result. Oh, you lied to me. Okay. Try this. It's like, it's like, how do you, how do you not know something is up? So this is where I, before I say this, I want to be clear. Samson's an idiot. Well, yeah, but I just, um, but I I think for, because again, for me, I always understood that he clearly understood that he was in imminent danger and he was being dumb enough to continue to give her. It seems like what's happening here is the, or at least the way it is in Samson's mind is Delilah is just testing to see if she told him the truth or if he told her the truth. Um, hmm. And that's what she wants to find out. So it's not that she has assassins or that she's trying to kill him. It's that she just wants to see. That's what he thinks. Yeah. If that's the truth. But again, but, <sighs> I don't the, know, man. but then again, also he must know that she would shave his head, right? Because she's done all the she's other things. She's done everything else. Yeah. But, it, but also, I guess the other thing is, does Samson not care about the fact that he's breaking his Nazarite vows? Is he just overcome with desire? Or is know. it because he already broke the Nazarite vows? He already broke the, the vow throughout his lifetime. Right. Is it literally like, oh, it's, there's no consequences here. Like, eh, yeah. It's, it's literally like, okay, if I cross the line here... Am I going to lose the like the, the 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 might that I have? But he does say, "If you do this, I will become like every other man." So I don't. But maybe he's just giving lip service to it, like we saw. I with, don't know. Uh, like, like this like, is always so confounding Gideon. to me. Like, and I, and at the end of the day, like God uses it, glorifies His name. He and he and he's and again, it's that where you see the Book of Judges is, is here's the gory details. Here's here's the depravity of uh, of the Israelite nation. Here's the brokenness, the fallenness. But every time I read it, I'm just like. I don't understand how you don't see what's coming. Right. And and so ironically, even when they, they capture him, they pluck out his eyes. Like you you didn't have the, the vision to see what's coming anyway. So what's the purpose? You don't need your eyes. Like it's just one of those crazy things that every time I read it, I have been left with that question and I have yet to have an answer to it. So anyways. it's, yeah, it's a little, it's a little, confusing. it's heartbreaking to me with Samson. Um, and again, the line, like he did not know the spirit of the Lord had left him. Like that's crazy to me. Um, and it's sad. Like, but Saul did, I think Saul, the same thing was said about Saul. So anyways, all these different things, it's just hard to, 
It's just, that's the one wrestling match I always have. It's like, God, Samson, what on earth? Anyways, I, I do not blame I belabor you. that point too much. So, All right. So Samson is brought before uh, basically thousands of Philistines, many of them very, very powerful. Uh, and then this happens. Essentially, he's he asks the Lord for one last one last empowerment to do one last thing and save Israel. Um, so Samson, this is chapter 16, verse 28. Then Samson called to the Lord and said, O Lord God, please remember me and please strengthen me only this once, O God, that I may be avenged on the Philistines uh, for my two eyes. Then Samson grasped the two middle pillars on which the house rested, and he leaned his weight against him, his right hand on the one and his left hand on the other. And Samson said, let me die with the Philistines. And he bowed with all of his strength and his and the house fell upon the lords and upon the people who were in it so the dead whom he killed with his death were more than those whom he had killed during his life so samson gets this he does get and he's one of the few judges that ends on a high note as well cuz sure. you, you kind of see like the the judges who are the uh the imperfect, obviously they're all imperfect, but you know what I mean. The imperfect yeah. judges, they all end on a low note for the most part. Um, Samson has an uptick. His last moment is an act of redemption, and his last moment is is kind of how he saves Israel, but is by taking out all these Philistines at once. So that is the story of Samson. We're going a little bit longer today, but... Well, the funny thing is I was just thinking like, Ruth is the book that we're also going to hit today. We're not going to talk about Samuel to give you a little bit lead time oh, true, yeah. for our podcast. Because um, we just hit the first eight verses of, of First Samuel this week, so we'll cover that next week when we launch into it. But Ruth is a four-chapter book. It's a very quick, high-level overview. So I don't feel bad that we're taking so much time through Judges because there's just so much here. Um, but I, I, it's funny. I was actually just thinking the same thing. So uh, <laughs> listeners, you get a little bit of the banter between Evan and I today. There, so you're you welcome. Go. All right. Well, this is the last section of Judges, uh, and we're completely shifting gears. So we don't yes. get we don't get stories of individual judges, but rather two separate stories of apostasy. So it's, it's, it is kind of interesting because it breaks the cycle of the rest of the book. Yeah. Well, I remember even as I was... W- when we entered the book, I remember there was the the prologue setting up what happened. Then there was the the core of the book, which is the judges. Uh, and then the last section of the book is literally like the, the full depravity. You see the full depravity of of the Israelites at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, so it shifts away from the stories of the judges and then talks about the apostasy. And so that and that's that's kind of the wrapping up of the section. You'll see that at the end here. Yep. And you're going to see what the theme of this last section here is very quickly. Uh, <laughs> yeah, but it's true. So. Yeah, first we meet a man named Micah who makes his own household gods and his own ephod. He's also committing thievery, just not a great guy. Um, And this first paragraph, it ends with the line, um, in those days there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. You'll notice that is the theme of this section. Yes. So that is that's kind of our setup, and then we're going to end up with a very I shouldn't say very similar line. We're going to end with the exact same line at the end. Uh, so eventually, Micah finds a Levite, and he thinks to himself, "Oh, awesome! I'll make this Levite my own personal priest, and God totally won't be mad about that." <laughs> um, because it, it's kind of just showing the ignorance of the law that Micah has. Because it, I I read this as he legitimately thinks this. Like he's yeah. like, oh, sweet. I'll just get this Levite to be my priest. And then me and Yahweh will be totally cool with all of my stuff. And so that's, that's clearly not what's going to happen there. Um, eventually, a group of Danites are traveling through because they apparently aren't invested in taking the land that Yahweh had given them. Uh, and so remember, the, the apostate, they're not apostate yet, but the tribe of Dan, they kind of have a rough go of it. They're told, hey, here's the land, take hold of it. And they're like, ah, I don't know, that's really difficult. I don't know if I want to do that. And so they just kind of run around looking for other land that they can take. Um, they 
break into Micah's house and they steal his idols, his ephod, and his priest. Um, although the priest is pretty cool with it. Like they're, they're, they they grab the priest and he's like, hey, what are you doing? He's like, hey, what if instead of being a priest to this one guy, you're the priest to this whole tribe of Dan? And he's like, oh, yeah, sweet. Okay, yeah, cool. Sounds good. So the priest goes with the tribe of Dan. Uh, we find out that the Levite's name is Jonathan, which I, I always forget about, but yeah we, yeah, we do get his name. I always think of him as the Levite. And this one I never caught before. Um, he's from the house of Moses. So this isn't just like some scrub Levite. Um, this is, he has a very, um, I can't think of the word I'm trying to say, but he has a very, he has a, he has a lineage to be proud of, I guess. I can't think of the word I was trying to use there, but he is a direct descendant of Moses through his son. And oh, got it's, it. So it's kind of sad that this Levite is, the Levite who is a, a center part of this story, who is also breaking the commands of God is a few generations removed from his great ancestor, Moses, there. Mm -hmm. Uh, We're also told that his family are the priests of Dan until the captivity of the land. So basically until either you're reading that as when Israel falls to Assyria or when Judah... Uh, when Judah falls to Babylon. I read it as Israel falling to Assyria, I think Mm -hmm. is what's referencing there, because that's where Dan is going to be. Um, And we find out that, yeah, Jonathan and his family, they are the priests for the tribe of Dan all the way through the end there. So they kind of get what they deserve, I suppose. (laughs) Uh, Finally, we get to the final section of Judges, or the final subsection. Uh, This is by far the most disturbing story in Judges and one of the most disturbing in all of Scripture. Uh, We're introduced to a Levite, and this is a different Levite, and his concubine. Um, A concubine, I guess, to kind of explain it, it's like a a family servant who has most of the rights of a wife, but without the honor of that, I suppose, is the best way I could say it. Um, And you can kind of see it where with Jacob, right? He has two wives, but he also has two concubines. And you don't remember the names of the concubines. You remember the names of his wives. Same thing with Abraham. Abraham has Sarah, but- uh, Hagar. Yeah, Hagar we remember because of Ishmael and everything. But there's another one whose name I already forgot, but we- uh, Well, that's right. Yeah, and so- um, it's kind of I like forget a, too, because that was uh, we talked about it exactly. I forget. Yeah, oh. I know. Uh, that just goes to show you, like it's 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 a less place of honor, um, and you kind of get the idea that the Levite is not treating her um, with yeah. the respect that she deserves. I I would say, based off of the actions that are about to happen, I think that's a pretty safe conclusion to draw. Yeah. Um, but she runs away, and he uh, he goes after her. Eventually, he gets her back. They travel around for a little bit. They end up in the land of Benjamin. And while they are there, uh, they stay at a house and this happens. So this is Judges chapter 19, verses 22 through 26. It says, as they were making their hearts merry, behold, the men of the city, worthless fellows, surrounded the house, beating on the door. And they said to the old man, the master of the house, bring out the man who came into your house that we may know him. Uh, side note, when it says that we may know him, it's it's sexual uh, Yeah. Uh, relations is yeah, what they're talking about. We may about have there. sex with them is yeah. what they're saying. Uh, and the man, the master of the house, went out to them and said, No, my brothers, do not act so wickedly since this man has come into my house. Do not do this vile thing. So pause right there. That's like, yeah, good, good deal, right? You you want him to <clears throat> you want him to say, hey, this is wicked. Do not do this. Next thing he says, and this is just showing you the the, uh, the apostasy, yeah, just the, how the far Israel has fallen. Yeah. Uh, behold, here is my here are my virgin daughter and his concubine. Let me bring them out now. Violate them and do with them what seems good to you. But against this man, do not do this outrageous thing. So he says, hey, no, don't do this wicked thing. 
here's my daughter and his and his his wife slash concubine, right? Uh, but the men would not listen. So the man seized his concubine and made her go out to them. And they knew her and they abused her all night until morning. And at dawn, as dawn began to break, they let her go. And as morning appeared, the woman came and fell down at the door of the man's house where her master was until it was light. Um, yeah. And so basically the the guy just throws out his concubine and he's like, okay, well, I, obviously I'm protecting myself here. And you can kind of read it both ways where is it the man of the house who grabs mm-hmm. um, the concubine? I kind of read it as it's the Levite who does, but I guess it, it could well, be Well, it's way. the Levite's not going to give, it, it's a both end. It's, it's this man trying to protect his guest because hospitality, the, the man of the house found them sleeping in the, in the, in the, the, the court uh, outside. So he knew that it was not a safe place for him to be. And so when he brought him to the house, it was showing hospitality which is where the, that passage starts off. They were making themselves merry. They were relaxing at home, drinking, uh, being being cordial and being welcomed in, in a warm space to sleep. Um, but there had to have been a, an acknowledgement and an allowance of the Levite to let his concubine be put outside. Yeah, at the very men. least. Yeah. Um, so the, when the Levite leaves in the morning, he discovers that his concubine has died. Um, and you can kind of just see like he just, he seems to just not care. Like he's like, hey, it's time to go. And then he realized that she's dead. And so he just like, Picks puts, her up, throws yeah, her on her. Puts, puts, on, puts her on Well, his it almost comes out like, yeah, I think it, the CSB reads that he, and I don't, know if, I don't know if the ESV reads this way, but the idea of he he walks out as if he's leaving, not expecting to have her back. And he finds her there. Like all of a sudden, oh, like, oh yeah. hey, okay, so you're back. Hey, it's time to go. Let's go. And she doesn't move. And so he realizes either he knew she was dead at that point or he knew she was pretty much dead. Either way, he picks her up and throws her on the donkey or the camel or whatever he has to travel. Yeah, the Levite is not a good guy no. in, this, in this story at all. Um, so he takes her body and he cuts it into 12 pieces, which he sends to each tribe. And when the men of Israel assemble, basically they're, they're outraged about this. Mm-hmm. Um, and he tells her that the men of, Gib- men of Gibeah took her and killed her while he was staying there. He conveniently leaves out the part where he's like cool, cool with, at the very least, he's cool with her being thrown mm-hmm. out into this crowd. Um the people of Israel are so enraged that they raise an army to fight Benjamin. And th- this is what I think is interesting. It's a righteous war because they inquire of Yahweh multiple times and, yeah. and God answers them. So this is not like this, this part of the story at least is not viewed as something that is um, wicked yeah. that the men of Israel do. Um, also the men of Benjamin have the opportunity to repent. It's not like, yeah. um, like they don't just show up and say, you're going to, you're going to die. Yeah. No, they, they, the men of Benjamin, they have an army and they're going to fight. So that, yeah. and that is what happens. Um, eventually Benjamin is almost entirely wiped out with the exception of 600 men who escape. Um, and they kind of form, they're the final survivors and they restart the tribe of Benjamin. Um, and they're red, they're wed to a dot, the daughters of a clan that did not answer the summons to war. So, and they're killed for it. So there's a clan that refused to come. So the armies of Israel go, um, they kill all the the fighting men of that clan. And then they take, um, the the unmarried daughters and they bring them into Benjamin and then that's how Benjamin gets restarted. Yeah. So and there's some and they didn't have enough wives. They didn't have enough women to cover all the wives. So there's another nuance there too. Oh right. Yeah. Uh, but I don't. I mean, I'm I'm gonna be. Honest, I'm not sure. I have to go back and reread part of it. But I don't think it's. It, I don't think it's manipulative on the Levites' part to say to leave out that information that he was part of the the, the consideration of because what was happening in the moment it was a wicked act. I mean, even even the 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 host of the house it was wicked. What the men of, of Benjamin wanted to do was wicked. Um, and in their wickedness, they took out the wrath and the vengeance of not getting what they wanted on this concubine. And so there was a wicked, like, so with with the, the Levite cutting up the body, which it, it, again, is so, this is such a troubling chapter of the Bible. Um, 
and it it's hard to comprehend and it's easy to it's hard to comprehend what's going on and it's easy to ascribe that God allowed this and approved of it. God didn't allow it, God didn't approve of it necessarily. It's a written document that shows this is what happened in the time. Right. At the total depravity of humanity. Um so I say this, but the other side of it too is like it was a wicked act. All of Israel responded as they should have. This is wicked, and we need to expel the wickedness from among us. That's part of the response. And it shows that there was there was still, still some recognition of the law and what was required of them after Mo- Moses would even say, expel the immoral. I mean, Paul says it, right? Expel the immoral mo- brother from among you. But even Paul, or Moses commands the Israelites, you must remove this wickedness from you. Take it outside of your camp. Stone the person or whatever. So there is this righteous uh, uh, justice that plays out that you see through Israel's response to this sheer act of wickedness, which is really important to understand too. Yeah, that's true. It's, it's, um, Aaron, you're not going to believe this. I completely lost what I was about to say right there. So I, guess. I so yeah. So, I, but I would just say like, I, I, I guess I, I, I caution the, the challenge or even the statement, like we, we don't know what we know is this act was wicked. The Levite sent out body parts to the entire tribe of Israel and Israel responded because of the act that was wickedness. And it hinged on a wicked moment in Benjamin. Okay. Finally remembered. That was a, that's an embarrassing brain fart. Sorry, listeners. I got you, Because it's been a long week. <laughs> so uh, I think I was going to say, yeah, the only part of this whole story that we get any sort of hint that God approves of is Israel going to war with yes. Benjamin over this. Yes. And so um, that, that was kind of just my basic point is that there, there's one part where it's like, this is the good thing. Everything else surrounding this is wicked and evil. Yeah. And then we see after the war, the people of Israel are, um, they're sorry in the sense, not sorry for what they did, but I guess they're they're um, they're horrified at the idea that one of the tribes will cease to exist. And so that's where everything comes out afterwards is they want to, they want Benjamin to be redeemed and mm-hmm. they want Benjamin to be able to continue to exist as one of the tribes because all of a sudden it's, and we'll see this later on in Israel's history yeah. where the, a bunch of the tribes are lost. But at this moment, they're fighting to, we want to make sure that this stays. Yeah, they're, they're taking care of wickedness, but they also understand it's not to eradicate a tribe. Yeah. Well, listeners, this wraps it up for, not the episode, but for our discussion of judges. It ends with the famous line, once again, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And that is, if there's anything that sums up the theme of the book of Judges, that That is is pretty much it. Yep. Uh, Well, we're going to do a quick discussion of Ruth here in a little bit. But before we do, we do want to take a moment to remind you to, uh, you know, if you haven't left us a five-star review yet, uh, please do. It helps us get the podcast out there to more people and continue to grow this community of everyone reading the Bible together. And... On Apple Podcasts, you can leave a written review. Looking at you, Spotify, if you would let us, if you would let us do that. Um, but if you leave your written review on Apple Podcasts, we will read it on the air, just like we're doing for A Driscoll twenty two. So we had this uh, review, and so I just appreciate it. it's a lot of fun. Um, and part of it is we're in a series right now as a church called uh, Connect the Dots, which is talking about our culture. We had a conversation about being authentic, uh, and uh, her title is, or his title is, Keeping It Fresh. Uh, and it's just, I really enjoy listening to Aaron and Evan. Thank you for putting my name first, by the way. Uh, walk through the Bible. This is really Evan's podcast. I'm just the color man. How dare you? Um, football reference there. Anyways, it says this, they're very human about it, and I think funny, but still teach and get deep into things that uh, through what feels like a real conversation anyone could have about the readings for the week. And I'm really glad they don't edit the show to come off as perfectionists. Um, we are anything but perfectionists. Uh, and so we enjoy, like we do it, there. It's funny cause there is a very intentional piece to that. And I'm, I'm thankful that you picked up on it. Like we, we don't want to presume that we're perfect and everything in this podcast is going to be perfect. Um, even, even the transparent moment of like, yeah, we're taking a lot of time on judges. 
Um, or my brain fart just a few minutes ago. Or your ago. brain fart. Uh, because we're, we're just, I mean, we're two, we're two dudes being bros about the Bible. Like, <laughs> Wow, what a, what a uh, line. But, uh, and I will say this too, um, I, was, I was thinking about it after I, we kind of took a sidebar and said, man, we're, we're taking a lot of time on Judges. There is so much in the book of Judges, especially the second half of Judges, that is confusing, that is hard to read. Like I, there's not a single joke that I made intentionally in, in the last part of our judges, because it is such a heavy chapter and such a heavy ending. Um, it, it would be insensitive. And I think wrong to take a moment of brevity in that, uh, to make fun or, or highlight or be, or be amusing about it because the reality is there's just so much to the book of judges. Um, I'm thankful now in the, in the shifting of the podcast, we could also talk about Ruth, uh, which well, is, yeah. If, if judges is one of the most depressing books of the Bible, Ruth is one of the most uplifting. <laughs> yes. And so I'm, I'm thankful for, uh, the opportunity that we get to read the book of Ruth this week and we end the week with the book of Ruth, not end the book anyways. Um, and so if, if you're anything about it, it's a four chapter, uh, you could even consider it an act. Each chapter is a different scene in this play that's being played out. Uh, but it's a very short read. Um, and I, I say it this way, that's probably one of my favorites in the Old Testament. Uh, with the way Judges ends and the story of Ruth, you can see, uh, you really can see the setting up of the nation of Israel, not just a covenant people, but as a nation. So you see the shift. Ruth plays this transition. It takes place during uh, during the time of Judges. There's not 100% certainty as far as when. We know there's a famine playing out, uh, which we'll get to that as we we kind of break down the book here in a second. Um, but you see this. You'll see this transition away from the end of Judges, where then those days there's no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. You see this transition to setting up nation, the nation of Israel, not just the, the covenant people of God. Uh, and so that's this like piece that you'll see because now the conversation shifts to Ruth, uh, shifts the conversation to Boaz, who have Obed, who has Jesse, who then has David. Uh, and you see this, this nation being set up in this plan. And we see this from a, a very wide 30,000 foot level of scripture in the Old Testament. Uh, in the moment, people didn't really see this, but we can see how God's plan is unfolding. And that's one of the things I love about reading the Bible today. Um, so it's a very short read. Um, it's a very uh, important to understand this, this um, distinction as a nation, because remember when God promised Abraham that through him, all the world would be blessed, that God setting up his own nation is not to make his own nation the only ones that he cares about. The whole purpose of God setting up the nation of Israel is that the whole world might be blessed through them. Um, so just remember that as as we get into First and Second Samuel, as we get into Kings, as we get into even Chronicles and the recap, which will hit some Chronicles uh, this week as well, which are just kind of genealogy overviews of the stories we've already read. So I'm not going to break them down today, um, but those are just literally inserts as far as the genealogies play out in the book of uh, Judges and Ruth. Uh, just to give you some contextual things, here's the family lines. Um, but you see that, that God is intending to set up a nation for the world to be blessed. Um, I love that we get to read a narrative because the way Judges ends isn't fun. Um, so we read a narrative about a husband and wife, Elimelech and Naomi. This is how it starts. Um, it takes place, like I said, during the time of Judges. Um, and even though we can't be certain, we know that there's a famine in the land because they traveled to Moab to settle because there was food present. Um Naomi and Elimelech have two sons, Malin and Killian, who marry Moabite women uh, while in Moab because their father died. Um, the wives' names are Orpha and Ruth. Uh, and then they die as well while in Moab. And so it's just Naomi with her daughters-in-law. Uh, Naomi decides to head back to Bethlehem and travels and, and in essence tells 
Ruth and Orpha to stay, uh, go back to their people and find husbands because they're still young. And we have this uh, this journey of Naomi going back to Bethlehem where she comes from uh, and seeing what God does. That That's kind of the context of kind of the higher, bigger picture of what's happening uh, in the book of Ruth here. Uh, we'll see chapter one, we'll introduce the characters, it'll introduce the context, um, and then set up uh, what brought Naomi and Ruth together, as well as um, this moment where Ruth is saying, I will not leave you, where Naomi has this moment saying, ladies, you need to go back to your people, you're still young, find a new husband, so that you can be prepared, uh, provided for uh, because I have nobody and nothing. The only and she has a relative back in Bethlehem, so she she understands the difference of people, uh, and so she tells them to stay. Orpha says goodbye and is weeping as she says goodbye. Ruth is clinging to her, uh, saying, "I'm not leaving you." And she makes this incredible line, and she says this incredible line that we know about Ruth. I'm going to go with you. Your people will become my people, and your God will become my God, which is a pretty powerful statement. Um, so she goes with Naomi back to Bethlehem. Uh, we see in chapter two or act two, we see Ruth meets this man named Boaz, who is actually a relative of Elimelech. Uh, and Ruth then heads to, talks to Naomi. Naomi says, hey, go glean uh, some of the, the 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 barley. They came when it was barley harvest time. So she said, hey, go walk behind the, the harvesters. Uh, because culturally, one of the things that I, I'm learning about Middle Eastern culture is very hospitable. They care about the widow. They care about... Um, the, the 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 pregnant woman, they care about these individuals. And so they make allowances for them. So when Ruth goes to a, a field to walk behind the harvesters, to walk behind the ladies, in essence, she's picking up the scraps of what was dropped, what was left. Um, and it's from the field of Boaz. Now she doesn't know it's Boaz's field at this point, but that's kind of the, the situation. She goes to glean fields so that way they have food to eat. Well, and that is a provision made in the law as yes, well. Yes, absolutely. Can't, I can't remember when we covered it, but God says straight up like, when when things drop, you're not supposed to um, you're not supposed to bend over and pick them up. You're supposed to leave it for the poor. Yeah, that's a way to that's a good that's a good reminder. For. Yep. So that's what's happening. So she goes to this field. Um, Boaz shows up. He says, "Hey," connects with his like the main manager of his field. Says, "Hey, who's this woman?" Uh, and the Boaz is told, "Hey, this is Ruth who came with Naomi from Moab." Uh, and so then Boaz, it's where he shows a lot of honor. He shows a lot of care. Um, he says, "Hey." Let her stay here. And then he has a conversation. He goes and meets her, has a conversation with her. And essence just says, hey, listen, stay here in my field. Don't go anywhere else because there's things that can happen to you if you go to other fields because not everyone's going to be ruling kind and generous. They will take advantage of you. They uh, will do things that that unfortunately happen as we see in the book of Judges. Because remember, this is happening during the time of Judges. So the depravity is still playing out. So Ruth is then provided for, protected for by Boaz. Um, Boaz at this point knows that this is like a family relative connection with, uh, Na- with, uh, sorry, um, Naomi, who it, it, I will say this, she did say, don't call me Naomi anymore. Call me Mara because the God has dealt harshly with me. She feels like she's being punished by the way, by God, uh, to where she doesn't have any, anybody to carry on her, the line. She doesn't have any sons. She doesn't have any grandkids. She just, in essence, she's going back to Bethlehem just to live her life and then die. Um, so, which is why she tries to get rid of, no, she doesn't try, but she gives allowance for Ruth and Orpha to leave, um, back to Boaz. So Boaz then provides for her, he covers her. And then he even says to his harvesters, Hey, drop some of the leaves on the ground. That way she has more to take home with her. That's one of my favorite mental pictures of the Bible is just like Boaz's workers. Like, Oh, oh no, I've dropped, <laughs> oh, I dropped these. Oh, oh man. Um, Boaz is going to be so mad at me. <laughs> 
Uh, and so, so then Ruth goes back to Naomi uh, and reveals what she's been able to collect. It tells all about, hey, this is the field I was at. This is the provision I have. And so they they are being well taken care of and provided for in this moment. Um, we go to chapter three. Uh, and this, I'm going to be honest with you. I'm going to read the entire chapter. It's 18 verses um, because this is probably one of my... Um, one of my favorite chapters, um, and there's reasons for that, but there, it's it's one of the most incredible pieces, I think, in this entire story. Um, and so so Boaz cares. So chapter three, this is where, I put it this way, Ruth makes a pass at Boaz. <laughs> um, Ooh. And so I'm just going to read it, and then I'll, I'll share and break down a few different thoughts. I'll break it down as I read it. Um, Ruth's mother-in-law says, verse one of chapter three. Naomi said to her, my daughter, shouldn't I find rest for you so that you can be taken care of? In other words, she's saying, shouldn't I help find you get a husband so that you will be taken care of? She understands she's a widow. She is not going to be able to provide for her her daughter. And so she's going to find a husband. Um, now, isn't Boaz a relative? Haven't you been working with, with his female servants? This evening, he will be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. Wash, put on perfumed oil and wear your best clothes. Go down to the threshing floor. But don't let the man you know or man know you are there until he has finished eating and drinking. So in other words, there's a customary piece here that Naomi is aware of, but Ruth may not be aware of because she's not from Bethlehem. She's not part of the Israelite nation. And so you have this moment where Naomi is coaching her daughter how to uh, make a request to Boaz. There is this thing called the kinsman redeemer. A kinsman redeemer, if you remember from some of our earlier discussions, um, is it would it would be the redeemer's responsibility if a family member, a family member's wife died. Sorry, the husband died, and the wife was left without kids. It would be the kinsman redeemer's uh, responsibility. I think is fair to say, um, maybe opportunity or the I, duty. I would say it's it's a responsibility because you see. Um is it Onan who in, I can't remember what book we're, it was in now, but who uh, who doesn't fulfill his responsibilities for his brother in, in God's Street of Kills? Yes. But I can't remember I th- yeah. so where it's, that it's, is. It's this responsibility that he has, and he's been given as, as a family relative to where you would take your family member's wife as your own wife, but and you would help carry on the line of your brother. So in essence, Boaz would carry on the line by getting Ruth pregnant of his, of his, would it be his nephew at that point? So be, or his, I, I don't know if we know shoot. exactly what Boaz is, but it, his relative, because it was Killian is who Ruth was married to, I believe. Is Malin or Killian? One I think of it's Malin. Uh, I mean, that doesn't matter. Yeah. So anyway, all that to say, the goal is like whenever Ruth has a kid, which would be Obed, spoiler alert, would carry on the line, not of Boaz, but of his relative. Um, and the son and the children would be first adopt, or adopted by as that line, so to speak. So that's what a kinsman redeemer is. He takes her under his wing as a provider. He's now a husband to her to help perpetuate the line of his relative. That's what a kinsman redeemer does. There's a lot more to it, but that's the basic premise where Naomi says, is he not a redeemer? So she tells her, she says, Naomi tells Ruth, get dressed up, put on perfume, dress nice. You're going to, you're going to try it. You're going to make a pass at him for a modern day way to say it. Go to the threshing floor. This is where um, he's there threshing the wheat, the barley to help because uh, you got to, I don't know the whole process of threshing wheat. Um, 
but the barley comes in seeds and kernels and you break it apart on the threshing floor. A light breeze comes and blows like the chaff, which is the, the covering of the seed away. And you're left with the heavier weight of the wheat itself or the barley. So Boaz is doing this. He's eating and drinking um, to do, as he's working. Uh, and then he's going to lie down, and take a nap, or he's going to be- go to sleep. It's nighttime. Um, and, so, and then she says in verse four, when he lies down, notice the place he is lying. Go in and uncover his feet and lie down. Then he will explain to you what you should do. So Ruth said to her, I will do everything you say. So she went to the threshing floor, did everything her mother-in-law had charged her to do. After Boaz ate and drank and was in good spirits, he went to lie down at the end of the pile of barley and she came secretly, uncovered his feet and lie down. Stop for a second. Uncovering one's feet in a moment like this was custom. It was a customary way of asking and requesting marriage. Um, there's a couple things that I, I'll say. I'll, I'll just finish reading and then I'll say, uh, no, I'll just say it now. Uh, so here's what happened. There's a, there's a couple things that we could take into consideration as far as did this happen? Or what's happening in this moment? Um, you see in verse eight says that midnight Boaz was startled, turned over and they're laying at his feet was a woman. He couldn't see it's dark. He says, so who are you? Ruth responds. I am Ruth, your servant. Take me under your wing for you are a family redeemer. So Stop there for a second. There's a couple different instances of what I've heard. And this is where I'm kind of a little bit passionate about this because I don't like the manipulation or I don't like the reading into the text that can be played out. But I will be honest, as I was reading through this again this week in preparation, I realized that this other side of the story is, is, is a potentially justified perspective, but I don't think it applies here. What I mean by this, there's two things that are happening. One, in this moment, they either uh, have sex together or they don't. Those are the two options here. I have heard it said um, that this is a moment where they actually have sex, that they they fool around, that uncovering the feet was a was a pass to seduce, was a pass to uh, consummate some kind of relationship and marriage. Um, and to be honest with you, as I was reading, the threshing floor is is known to be a place of illicit sex in in ancient times in the Middle Eastern society in this time of the, of humanity. And so I could now understand as I'm reading, I'm like, okay, that makes sense that that would be a possibility of what happened. But what I would suggest, and he is, he's in good spirits, which means he's he's drank enough wine to be a little bit uh, jovial, to be a little bit buzzed, if you will, uh, maybe a little drunk. Um, so it could have played out this way. When Ruth came in, uncovered his feet and laid at his feet, um, she's dressed in perfume. She's dressed in, or she's wearing perfume, dressed in fine clothes, as washed, as clean, as is presenting herself to be attractive and alluring. Um, so I could see on one hand that this would be an instance. That's a possibility. The second possibility is nothing happened. And this is where, this is the camp that I stay in. I don't think anything happened because look at Boaz's response. Verse 10 says, then the Lord may bless you. May the Lord bless you, my daughter. You have shown more kindness now than before because you have not pursued younger men, whether rich or poor. Now, don't be afraid, my daughter. I will do for you whatever you say, since all the people in my town know that you are a woman of noble character. Emphasize noble character for a second, please. And then he says this, yes, it is true that I am a family redeemer, but there is a redeemer closer than I am. Stop. If he recognizes she's of noble character, he who has already shown himself to be of noble character and how he's cared and provided for her above and beyond what would have been expected as a family member for Naomi and Ruth. I don't think it's fair to then say that what happened in the threshing floor should stay in the threshing floor, so to speak. I don't believe they had sex because of the nobility, because of the character with which they walked in. Boaz recognizes there's another redeemer. So he knows it's not his right to sleep with this woman. 
Uh, and he says, stay here tonight and in the morning. If he wants to redeem you, that's good. Let him redeem you. But if he doesn't want to redeem you as the Lord lives, I will. Now lie down until morning. Well, I think there's also like one of the arguments for saying that's what happened is like they're, they're just trying to preserve um, the character and the perception of Ruth and Boaz. But I think, A, the Bible is not shy about sin. Like it Absolutely. Much, it, anytime it makes it 100%. And the other way you can argue it's Ruth is essentially like, it, it, it seems to me clear that it's written as a kind of apology for David or as a, um, as an argument for like David's lineage. Um, so you can say from that instance, maybe like they they wouldn't touch on that because they don't want to um, cast David in a bad light. Mm-hmm. The argument against that would be, I mean, David, like they, they, David is cast in a bad light, yes. <laughs> like, like David's life. Like they don't shy away from the Bathsheba incident. They don't shy away from any of David's failures. Those are all recorded. Um, so it, to, to me, the argument that, uh, they wouldn't record this sin specifically, but they record everything else. Doesn't seem to hold yeah. water. And then even like with the lineage thing, um, like Solomon, his whole lineage is that his mother uh, committed adultery with the king, and yeah. her husband, her first husband, is murdered, and that stays in just fine. So it seems weird to to single out this one point in the Old Testament as saying this is the this is basically the one time where yeah. this happens, as opposed to everywhere yeah. else. Agreed. So all that to say. So I'm, I don't believe that anything happened. I believe it was an honorable moment, an honorable night. And then the other side of it, you see uh, verse 14. So she lay down at his feet until morning, but got up while it was still dark. Then Boaz said, don't let it be known that a woman came to the threshing floor. This is not trying to cover sin. This is trying to uh, flee the appearance of evil. Uh, so that way there's not a, a moment of compromise. That way it's not a, hey, I saw her leave your place this morning, Boaz. Because in the chapter four, we see him go to a city gate. Um and, and I'll talk about that here in a second. But so we, it, it wasn't to, it was to provide and cover the integrity and the character of the moment, which is how I would read it and interpret it. Uh, and so he told Ruth, verse 15, bring the shawl you're wearing and hold it out. When she held it out, he sh- shoveled six measures of barley into her shawl. And then she went into town. She went to her mother-in-law, Naomi, who asked her, what happened, my daughter? Then Ruth told her everything the man had done. She said, he gave me these six measures of barley because he said, don't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. In essence, it's this it's this vote of confidence and this verification of promise saying, I will redeem you and I will protect and provide for you if this other redeemer does not. But it's it's a, it's a, a, it's like a promise. It's a, a, dare I use the phrase, which I think could potentially be a negative thing, like a promise ring kind of thing. Um, it's a statement that was made. It's a gift that was given saying, I will, I will follow through with what I said I will do, um, but let's wait until the morning to see what, how everything plays out. Naomi said, verse 18, my daughter, wait until you find out how things go, for he won't rest until he resolves this today. Um, so that's the end of chapter three. And so there's just this incredible moment where uh, Boaz recognizes the, the, the responsibility as a redeemer. He says he'll uphold it, but he's going he's gonna to go, he's going to do it properly where there's a redeemer who has first priority. Uh, and so then we see in chapter four um, that this encounter happens. In chapter four, we see Boaz get up. We see Boaz go uh, to the city gate. And I mentioned the city gate when we were talking about Samson for a minute. City gate was not just like the primary defense and the primary uh, stronghold of a city, but it was also the place where like social, economic, political, um, and, and local disputes and conversations were taking place. So Boaz goes to the city gate. He sits there, waits for this other kinsman redeemer, who we don't actually have his name. I don't. I don't believe. Um, I always call him Bob. Yeah, we'll call him Bob. Bob and Boaz. Um, so he says, "Hey," he sees this other redeemer coming. He says, "Hey, we must talk." 
And so then he sits the guy down. There's an audience there because there's a public conversation about to take place. It's about redeeming, doing the kinsman redeemer thing. Boaz presents the the land and the property. Hey, here's the the land of Elimelech it needs to be redeemed. Do you want to redeem it? He says, yes, I want to redeem it, uh, which on one hand is like, oh, bummer, because Boaz was a good guy. Then Boaz continues. It's almost a little bit shady is what I feel like. <laughs> Not shady, but it was very, it was very shrewd, very shrewd. That's the word I was going to say cunning. I'm like, that's not the word. so shrewd, very shrewd the way he did it. Okay, cool. You're going to redeem this. Also, don't, don't you just realize, uh, it also comes with Naomi and Ruth, which then you are to, you are to fulfill your responsibility as a redeemer to perpetuate the line of your relative. This other redeemer says, uh, no, I can't do that. Never mind. Um, so he kind of backs off of his responsibility. Um, and whether that's a good thing or bad thing doesn't matter. Cause that's not the story of Ruth. Then Boaz says, okay. In front of all these witnesses, you are telling me you are not going to redeem this property or this family. You're not going to fulfill the kinsman or the redeemer. No, I'm not going to redeem it. He then hands off a sandal uh, and hands it to Boaz, which this is kind of an old, even in that time, it was an old school way of making an agreement, but it was at a city gate in a public setting, taking off the sandal and giving it to another. It was a public way of renouncing one's property rights and transferring them to the other. So if Evan and I were talking, we we're redeemers, I'd take off my shoe and hand it to him. It's literally a symbol of the property that I just, I, I have right to, I'm yielding and giving up. And now, Evan, because you have my shoe, you now have the rights to that property. And as my the redeemer. axe. And my axe. Sorry, that's just a that's <laughs> Lord just of the Rings reference. Um, so this is what happens. Boaz and the, and, the, and the company of witnesses is told or is, is proven to, to, in essence, have the, the contract agreed upon. He's going to be the kinsman redeemer. Uh, we see they get married. Um, so Boaz redeems the land, obviously they get married. He marries Ruth. Um, they get married and they had, she gets pregnant to a son named Obed. We'll see Obed come to play in the coming weeks and chapters, but it's interesting here because if you remember back in Moab, what couldn't Ruth do? She couldn't have a son. Mm. And she, she was there for 10 years before her husband died and she couldn't have a son. And it's almost instantly that when she gets married to Boaz, that she's able to have pregnant, be pregnant and have a son. Uh, and this is incredible picture, this incredible moment of Naomi celebrating the birth of her grandson. The line is going to continue on. And we also see the line is going to be the future line of David, which is also the future line of Christ. Um, and that's the book of Ruth. And that's, that's where it all kind of wraps up and ends, uh, which is such a better picture and such a better way to end the week than, uh, than the book of Judges. So, But that's Ruth in a nutshell. All right. We are going to power through... Super fast. These next two sections. Yes. Thank you for sticking with us this long, listeners. Uh, we'll just take a couple minutes with the first section. Uh, what did we learn today? Okay, so the main thing I was thinking of just reading through Judges, and we like you, you said, we read through a lot of yes. Judges, and you can take out an application for every single part. Um, for me, the overarching application, I suppose, is that God uses sinners and thank God that he does. Mm -hmm. And so I think, and you even mentioned something along those lines where you said, uh, it's, it gives hope for us today. Yeah. The fact that we see this. And so, so true. Um, I think, I guess even if, in particular, if we're showing the story of Samson, he's a man who's deeply flawed and yet yeah. God still uses him um, to do. And, and I love Samson's heart at the end where it's essentially like, allow me to do this one more thing. And, and, and I think there's, there's a redemption there that I think is really powerful. Mm -hmm. And I think it's a it's a way for us to look, not not to make excuses for sin and just be like, yeah, I can do whatever I want because God will still use me. Um, but I think it gives us hope to not yeah. beat ourselves up and to realize like, even when we stumble, even when we fall, um, we don't need to despair. We don't need to lose hope because we know that God 
is always able to use yeah, us. So good. Uh, and I mean, as I'm just thinking through the book of Ruth, um, there's so many layers to it. I think you obviously see God's providence and God's provision. You see God's plan. At the end of the day, I, me- I, rem- I remember um, Ruth's statement about, call me Mara for God is punishing me. Um, God has forgotten me. Um, and and I think it's important to remember, like at the end of it, like that's not what Naomi was saying at the end of her life. What Naomi was saying, not the end of her life, but the end of the story, right? We see her celebrate God's faithful provision. She came into the came into the the story, uh, wondering about God's faithfulness, wondering about God's provision and protection and and uh, provision and all those things. And then at the end of it, she changes her name. She comes to the end of it and realizes, God, you were faithful in all this. And I think there's something to be said about recognizing, um, again, I think I've said this before many times, but the idea of Romans 8, like, for we know that God works in all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. I think for us today, like, no matter the circumstance or the situation or what you're constantly navigating, um, and there's so many things that we could list off, but I think there's something to be said about, God, give me the, the, give me the perspective of Naomi at the end not in the middle of it because at the end of the day, God's faithful, God's working for the good and he's going to glorify his name through it. And he's going to reveal himself as the provider. And so uh, in the midst of judges, in the midst of the the era of the judges, there is this one incredible moment. There's a lot of them, but there's this one incredible moment with Ruth and Naomi uh, that I think is really important and to understand that e- even in all of those things, God is still glorifying his name. His will is still ha- coming forth. And, and it's, it's going to be fun to look back and celebrate no matter the seasons of life we're in. Uh, so just remember, like God God is faithful. God is working things out. He is faithful to bring to completion what he starts. And so I think that's really good and important for us to remember today too. Oh, great points. Yeah, having a little ray of hope taking place right after Judges or even like it's probably taking place close to the story yeah. of the Levite and his concubine in, the, in that war. Um, it is nice to remember that not everyone in Israel is the worst right now. It's so, <laughs> so true. Good deal. Um, all right. Last part, we did have a question come in, so we will answer that. Okay. So this is a really interesting question. Uh, so it says, hello, O legal eagles, which that's a new one. Uh, oh, scholars of the Bible, uh, what parts of the law, Torah, Pentateuch do modern day Jews keep and don't keep? I appreciate there's a bunch like sacrifices that aren't done as there's no temple anymore, but I'm curious if you could shed some more light on the subject. Um, okay. So this was a really fun thing to look into. Uh, I said this at the top of the episode, but to preface this, this is not my area of expertise. Like I am not an expert on uh, Judaism in general or modern Judaism, especially. Um, and so really things to say it, things start to diverge when you get past around AD 70 and the fall of Jerusalem. Um, at this point, the second temple is destroyed and there would never be another, or at least up until now. Like in modern days, there has not been a third temple. Um, a rabbi named Gamaliel II became the leader of the first leader of the Sanhedrin post the second temple. And so he kind of seems to have led the charge as to what Judaism would look like in post uh, in the post-temple world. He's a little bit of a controversial figure. Um, I'm going to be honest, I don't fully understand the different reasons why he's controversial, but uh, kind of just like reading about him a little bit. And it's important to recognize that this is the second time the Jews have had to do this, right? Because remember, the first temple is destroyed and they have to, that's what Esther is about, is about Jews living in Persia. And it's clearly not that they, um, they're not living in sin. Like they're, they're able to be Jews mm-hmm. w- even without the temple. Um, while they're, all of Israel's in the exile, they're also um, holding on to their faith and they're practicing Judaism without the temple. So it clearly is possible. So that's kind of a little bit of the history of how they got there. Um, as far as modern Judaism goes, there's four, three, four-ish basic groups. Um, and so th- it's a little bit confusing because obviously there's a lot more, kind of like 
like Christianity, we would say there's three basic groups of Christianity. Um, there's Catholics, Orthodox, and Protestant. But within all of those, there's a lot of subgroupings. Yeah, those are like the three main branches right. with other branches exactly. coming so, out from each of them. Yeah. So it, it's it's a simplification, but it's, it's the basic framework of it. Um, it's also hard because you have to kind of relearn words because the words, when they apply to Judaism, do not mean the same thing as when we use them in Christianity. And we'll talk about it here in a second. So uh, to kind of go run the gambit, um, you have what we'll call reformed. And this is kind of the, this is where I say you have to relearn. Because when you think of reformed Christianity, that's a very... Um, uh, usually, usually Calvinist, I shouldn't say usually Calvinist, they are Calvinist, um, Protestant group that is very traditional is what we think of reformed. Reformed Judaism is the exact opposite. It's essentially <laughs> like, uh, they don't seem to observe any of the, um, any of the laws of the Torah, except for the moral laws. So the idea is, um, the main thing they take out of the first five books of the Bible is kind of, kind of the 10 commandments. I suppose you could say, even there, it's a little bit wishy-washy, but essentially like be a good person, um, do good things. And then all of the specific laws they do not follow anymore. Um, the next group would be kind of in the middle. They're, uh, they're called conservative, conservative, conservative Jews or conservative Judaism. Um, some keep the basic dietary and observe the Sabbath. Others choose not to. Again, it's a little bit more wishy-washy there. And that's where it kind of breaks down into subcategories of these are like the major branches. Um, but they follow most of the law the way that we would describe it, at least the parts that are possible. After that, you have Orthodox, um, which is they follow the entirety of the law that is practical and possible. So obviously, like you, you said at the beginning, um, they're not doing sacrifices because you can't, there's no temple anymore. Um, but everything that can be followed, they are going to follow. They're going to keep kosher. Um, they're going to observe all of the festivals, all the dietary laws, and then the Sabbath is strictly observed. So it's, it's, it's observed in the way that we would see um, the Jews of Jesus' day observing the Sabbath, where there's like, I think, I think there's even rules about like they don't turn on or off electricity. There's no driving on the Sabbath. It's kind of straight up, like we're following the letter of the law here. Uh, and there's finally kind of like a subgroup at the end. Uh, the way I, I, when I was reading about this, it's described as like orth, uh, ultra-Orthodox. Um, the Hasidic Jews are a part of this. Essentially, they're similar to Orthodox where they follow the entirety of the law um, that is possible. However, usually they create separate communities for themselves. So they're living um, kind of either in their own separate enclaves within cities. Um, and when you think of kind of the traditional, like I'm thinking of like Jewish men with like the black clothing and the hats and and the, uh, I don't know what they're called. I feel bad about this, but um, what you're picturing there is an ultra, ultra Orthodox Jew. So those are kind of the four groups. So to put that into perspective, um, the Orthodox and ultra Orthodox are, are relatively small groups, especially compared to either reformed or you can just call them secular Jews. And that's another thing that's hard to break down because Judaism is both a um, an ethnic group and a religion. So there's a lot of people who identify as ethnically Jewish who don't observe any part of mm -hmm. being religiously Jewish. And so that kind of shakes us all down a different, a couple of different ways. Um, but those are the main branches of, um, of Judaism today to, I, th I want to say that Orthodox makes up about like five to 10% of the Jews in the United States. So it's a very small group. Um, conservatives are a little bit more and then reformed and then secular Jews are a much higher group than that. So if that kind of helps put it into picture, um, that's kind of how it breaks down. But to, to put it simply, a small group of Jews follow the entirety that is possible of the Old Testament law. Most 
um, modern, and we'll, we'll just keep it to even like just religiously practicing Jews would consider themselves. I think reformed is the largest group there. Um, and then there was also, I, I was reading an article, there was a group of, um, this is a very small group, but they're actually trying to offer sacrifices on the Temple Mount. Hmm. So that was the thing that happened a, f- a few years ago. So there is like a, a, a tiny that's, movement yeah. trying to bring it back a little bit, but that's it. That's hopefully that was interesting yeah. to you. Well, and, and I would say this, if you're, I'm not going to speak into this because this is Evan's work. He did all the research there. So, but I would just simply say this, if you, uh, maybe you're a listener and you are part of the modern day Jewish population and we misrepresented or we misspoke, please tell us um, and please comment in because we would love to, to learn more about it because we know we don't have all the answers. So, um, but that pretty much wraps up our episode this week of the podcast. Um, and I'm going to hand it over to Evan to do a spiel. I was about to say, like, wait, are you doing the spiel this week? Oh man. Uh, but we are, as a reminder, we are a podcast of the Grove Church, but we are not the only resource of the Grove Church. You can find all of our other resources on our website, grove.church under the media tab. And if this podcast has been a blessing to you and you would like to financially contribute to the ministry that the Grove Church does, you can also do that on our website. There's a give button in the upper right-hand corner. And you know what? Thank you all so much for listening. Happy Palm Sunday and Passion Week. Oh, that's right. See you, listeners.